Hello, I'm Rolf Fontanelle, and you're listening to Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast. And this week we're talking to Professor Richard Seifert of the University of Exeter about the birth of the soul, the intellectual history of the early axial age. Richard, thank you for being on the podcast. First off, to set the stage, it might be worth asking what is the axial age exactly and what makes it so axial. Well, the axial age is a term invented by Carl Jaspers, philosopher and polymath, not long after the Second World War. What is it? Well, unfortunately, as so often, there isn't a general agreement about what exactly it is. Though, roughly speaking, it's the period from about 800 BCE to 300 BCE in which radical intellectual transformations occurred in a number of different civilizations, producing, roughly speaking, the cultural map that we still have and the civilizations of Greece, Israel, India, China, sometimes Iran. And uh, it's a subject which has been attracting quite a lot of attention recently. Of course, the questions to be asked about it is, is there such a thing as the Axial Age? That is to say, are the intellectual transformations in these cultures sufficiently similar to deserve the same term? What caused this transformation, to what extent is it still with us, and so on. Okay, so you've covered the time frame, and the axialness of it presumably comes to this commonality, or this perceived commonality, of intellectual development. New stuff is happening, and that's somehow axial in the grand scheme of things. So, a particular interest to us in the axial age is one of the key developments seems to be the rise of new concepts of soul, or of, let's say, what it is to be a human being, what a human being consists in beyond a body. But before we talk about these, it might be useful to look at the evidence for what we know about what constituted a human being before the Axial Age. So I wonder if you could talk about some of this evidence. So in other words, if there wasn't a soul, per se, before the Axial Age, and we'll get into maybe what we mean by soul a bit further on, what was a human being before that? Well, the two axial civilizations that I know best, which are also, I think, the two which are best placed to, uh, on the basis of which to answer your question, are Greece and India. And interestingly, you have, both in Greece and in India, early texts, which are, roughly speaking, pre-philosophical, and I'm talking about Homer, in particular, in Greece, and the Rig Veda in India, followed by, in both civilizations, something like the birth of philosophy, depending, of course, on how you define philosophy. So that in Greece you move from the world of Homer, which is roughly speaking the 8th century BC, to a new conception, a radically new conception of the universe and of man's place in it in the 6th century and the 5th century BC, known as pre-Socratic philosophy. Mm. And out of pre-Socratic philosophy you have Plato and Aristotle and the whole of ancient philosophy. In India you have the Rig Veda, which is a bit like Homer, but even more so, dated to very different periods, dating from uh, the earliest, about the middle of the second millennium BC. Mm. But clearly um, the Rig Veda, particularly the tenth book, contains material which is much later. And of course... Uh, Homer probably wasn't written down until the 6th century BC, but these in early Indian texts were not written down until very much later. So the Rig Veda 
was subject to centuries of oral transmission and therefore very right. difficult to date. However, what's interesting in answer to your question is that in India from about 8th, 7th, 6th century BC, again dating is impossible with these early Indian texts, you have a new conception of the universe and the place of man in it. Just as in Greece you have a new conception at about the same time in the 6th century BC. And the transition from Homer to pre-Socratic philosophy has some striking similarities to the transition from the Rig Veda to these later texts, uh, in particular the Brahmanas, um, which are mainly about ritual, but nevertheless contain some proto-philosophical speculation, and the Upanishads. The Upanishads uh, emerging out of the need to interpret the sacrifice, which is what the Brahmanas are mainly concerned with, and as a result of the need to, interpret, need to interpret the sacrifice, producing something that is legitimate to call philosophy, mm. in which ritual has to a large extent been left behind. And that then corresponds to pre-Socratic philosophy. Now, what is it that's similar in the, between the Indian transition and the Greek transition? Well, let's take the idea of the inner self or soul. Uh, there are a lot of terms which are used for something like the inner self, the soul, the mind, the subject, um, and it can be quite confusing because they mean different things, they overlap. One perhaps is best advised to think of them in terms of their opposite, so the soul is, as it were, the opposite to the body, uh, the mind also the opposite to the body, but the soul uh, is very often thought of as immortal. The subject is opposite to the object, and the self is opposite to others. I like the term inner self uh, because it implies an individual, but just the inner dimension of the individual, and is quite close, therefore, to soul and mind. Now, it's striking, and this has been recognized for some time, that in Homer there's no word for the inner self as a bounded, comprehensive entity of consciousness. That is to say, what we think of as the mind or the soul, which constitutes the personality, uh, the real uh, person of each individual. And I use the terms comprehensive and bounded. That it's comprehensive in the sense that it contains emotions, perceptions, desires, it originates action, it contains the full range of consciousness. It's bounded in the sense that, well, it has boundaries, it can't be confused with what is outside it. My inner self is quite distinct from your inner self, and my inner self is quite distinct from uh, that table or my leg. Um, it is a bounded entity. Now, in Homer, there's no word for that, what you have is a number of different words for the various organs of consciousness, like thumos, meaning spirit, or menos, meaning something like might, and so on. Prepides, and one could give a whole list of these Greek words, none of which refers to what later was referred to by the word psuche, meaning a soul, which particularly from Plato onwards meant precisely this bounded, comprehensive organ of consciousness. We have psuche in Homer, don't we? But it means something very Yes, different. we do have psuche in Homer, but it is 
only has one role, which is to leave the body on loss of consciousness, whether on death or on fainting. Now, the psuche then, having left the body on death, goes down to the underworld, and the underworld then has psuche in it. And uh, the psuche of Patroclus appears in a dream to Achilles, late in the Iliad. Now, the interesting thing about this psuche of Patroclus, it's the dead Patroclus. You can see him, you can hear him, he speaks, he is Patroclus, except that there's a sense in which he doesn't exist. He's insubstantial. Not quite clear what is involved here, but he's not substantial. Were you to lean out and touch him, he would dissolve like a shadow. However, the fact that he is Patroclus for all eternity, and in most respects like Patroclus, meant that the psuche was the word used later on by Plato, but also even before Plato, to refer to the most important part of you, which is the immortal part of you, the part of you which will survive after your death. And so you have a development in which, in Homer, there is no word for the comprehensive bounded organ of consciousness. In Plato there is, but the word Plato uses, psuche, has evolved from being simply the thing which leaves you when you die and plays no role in your life to the thing which is the most important thing about your life, which is your inner self, which will indeed leave you when you die and is immortal. So this is an enormous transition in which the psuche becomes at the centre of attention. It, for Plato, is enormously important for understanding the world and above all for understanding how we should live. Now, if you turn to the uh, Indian material with this question in mind and ask the same question of the Rig Veda, is there a bounded comprehensive organ of consciousness? The answer, insofar as I can see after some research, is no. There are various words, manas, jiva, prana, atman, and so on, none of which refers to a bounded comprehensive organ of consciousness. So it's like Homer. And indeed, as in Homer, the words that do exist for organs of consciousness are not particularly important. They're not at the centre of attention. They're not made into the subjects of sentences in the way that the psuche clearly in Plato is. So it's rather like Homer. Then you go on to the early Upanishads, 6th, 5th century BC, and what you find is that one of the words that was used in the Rig Veda as an organ of consciousness, though it sometimes seems to mean rather something like breath, Atman, has become at the centre of everything. The famous expression, Atman is Brahman, which you find repeated several times in the early Upanishads, means effectively your Atman, your inner self, is Brahman, meaning the whole of the universe. Your Atman is everything. And in the discourse of the early Upanishads, Atman is enormously important, just as Psuche in Plato is enormously important for understanding the world and how you should live. Now, there are, of course, important differences between the Greek and the Indian material. But in this is a respect, and there are others, but this is a respect in which they're strikingly similar. You have a movement from a world in which there is no bounded comprehensive organ of consciousness, to one in which not only is there a term for it, but it has become enormously important.
And it's had enormous staying power in both cultures. Even if people don't necessarily believe in a soul or think about soul, per se, the idea of soul is a persistent background to Western thought. Even It even influences, say, classical liberal theory on the rights of human individuals and stuff like this. In law terms, we treat ourselves as though we have souls, even if no one actually necessarily believes in a soul. Do you see what I mean? Yes. I mean, the fact is that the word soul has religious associations. And if you say, I believe in the soul, people may well take you to believe that you consider it to be immortal. However, of course, the psuche doesn't have to be immortal. Uh, it doesn't even have to be incorporeal. The first person to make a systematic distinction between the corporeal and the incorporeal is Plato. Before that, there's a quite a developed notion of the psuche in Heraclitus, for example, mm. in which it's composed of fire, so it is corporeal. Mm. To be sure, it's a tenuous kind of body fire, but nevertheless it is matter, rather than the asomatos, the incorporeal, which um, you find for the first time in Plato. And interestingly, similarly, in the Indian material, you find the word asarira, which doesn't occur in the early texts, and occurs for the first time probably in the early Upanishads, meaning incorporeal. So this distinction between the incorporeal and the corporeal, which is fundamental to so much later philosophy, occurs about the same time in these two different cultures. And it is, it is distinct from the distinction between body and soul, because the body could be corporeal. And in many so-called primitive cultures, you have the notion of the soul, but it's not considered to belong to an ontologically distinct realm of the incorporeal. It might be something rather tenuous that floats away, or takes the form of a bird, or whatever. It doesn't have to be incorporeal. Mm. But to go back to your question about the influence of all this, and it still being with us, of course you're absolutely right. Psuche is, of course, still with us. We might call it the mind or the soul, but it's this notion of this bounded inner self is still very much with well, us. If we're Christians, we'll simply say, no, it's the soul, full stop, yes. like yes. school definition. Yes. But interestingly, um, there has been, in the last 15 years or so, an interesting um, debate in British analytic philosophy as to the question of whether the inner self exists. Mm. Now, this goes back to David Hume, the philosopher of the Enlightenment, who said, no, actually, the inner self doesn't exist because if you, if you examine your experience, your, your, your emotions, your perceptions, what's going on in your mind, what you're aware of is a constant flux of impressions, thoughts, motives, desires, and so on. And where is this extra thing, which is the inner self? It just isn't there. We, we made it up. You don't need to talk about it in order to describe your subjectivity. Now, this position was argued in great sophistication and detail by a man called Derek Parfit on the book called Reasons and Persons. And the counterposition was taken by Richard Sarabji in a subsequent book on the self, in which he claims, no, no, there is an inner self. The inner self is what owns our perceptions and emotions and, and so on. Um, and... It's quite an interesting debate. One of the interesting features of it for me is the, is the terminology used by Sarabji, owns, mm. which must be a metaphor. I mean, ownership is legally sanctioned possession. You don't have legally sanctioned possession of your emotions. But he's constantly using this word own. So the question is, what is it a metaphor for? I don't believe it's a metaphor, ultimately. I think... 
that ownership historically is crucial in constructing the idea of the inner self in which I stand apart from my inner data, my desires and perceptions and all the rest of it in the way that an owner of goods stands apart from his goods and yet he has exclusive rights to them um, in the way that he does to his own body, for example. And uh, so that's one of the interesting things about this debate. But another interesting thing, of course, is that the fact that it's happening at all, because we just take it as a fact of nature that each of us has a, an inner self. Uh, we reify it. But neither of them, neither Parfit nor Sarabji, consider the question anthropologically. They talk about this issue as, as if they're talking about whether Paris is the capital of France or not. It's a, just a fact about the world, isn't it, that you have it or that you don't have it. But actually, if you look outside the tradition which they're operating in, outside the Western tradition, particularly at Melanesia, you'll find a wealth of anthropological writing which shows that these people don't have a conception of the bounded comprehensive inner self. They just don't have it. Hmm. So the question then arises, well, have they not noticed they've got it? This is the question you might put to Sorabji. I mean, are these people in error? Have they gone through their lives just not realising they've got this thing, they've just never got round to noticing it or describing it. And the answer is, if you consider it in this light, is of course that um, the inner self is a construction. And of course the Buddhists, who are cited by Parfit, take the view that we don't have such a thing. Well, I was going to bring up the Buddhists because very soon after the Upanishads start to appear, we get early Buddhism appearing. And this would seem to be the Humean critique about, you know, two, one and a half thousand years before Humor, two thousand years, however long it was, saying this Atman business, this reified substance that you guys are positing, doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. Yes, you have feelings. Yes, you have affects. Yes, you experience desire and so on and so forth. But this ground of being behind it, this extra thing, is not there. Yes, I take the view, and it can only be speculation, that what's really going on here is that the Buddhists are reverting to, roughly speaking, a pre-Upanishadic view of the world. Hmm. In which so the they have an archaic, old-school way of thinking. Yes, just as they do in certain other respects. For example, the Sangha, the Buddhist Sangha, is a community of monks. But that word Sangha originally meant a political assembly. So it's the persistence of the assembly now no longer possible in the monarchy, but in a new form. And I would say something quite similar about the doctrine of anatta, the doctrine of non-self. However, as I must emphasize, that's impossible to prove. But that's the way I think history works. Interestingly, both Parfit and Sarabji talk about Buddhism. But all Sarabji does is to argue that their arguments in favor of non-self are fallacious. And what Parfit does is to say, look, not only do I have these arguments, but the Buddhists also have these supporting arguments, which are not fallacious. So they're dealing with it entirely analytically, both of them, because they're analytic philosophers. They have no sense of history mm. or of sociology. So, yeah, a priori reasoning could maybe take us to believe in a soul or not, depending on our... Because it's obviously in history, a priori reasoning has led in both directions, hasn't it, to 
a strong idea of the soul and to a non-strong idea of the soul. But um, you would argue that this, this so-called independent a priori reasoning is always conditioned by the kind of society a, a given reasoner finds himself in. They're going to reason in a certain way depending on the kind of society they live in. Yes, that's right. The reason why the issue between Suraji and Parfit is undecidable is that the soul, the inner self, in my view, is a construction. That's really pretty much all you can say when it comes to trying to resolve the dispute between them. Mm. But then the really interesting questions start, which is that why do you find this construction at all? Why do you find it in some societies and not in other societies? And if you look at the anthropological evidence, you can see how the arrival of Western economic models, in particular individual property, Mm-hmm. promotes the belief in the bounded individual self. Let's back up a minute. I'm very interested in this. Can you very briefly talk about exactly what you're talking about when you say the arrival of Western economic models and when this is happening, what exactly are we talking about? So money has something to do with it, I believe. Money has something to do with it, but um, there's... Um, uh, in, for example, there's a passage I'm thinking of written by a Melanesian anthropologist uh, who is describing the arrival of the, the trade store in a community. I mean, he has experience of this. This is probably from the 50s and 60s. I can't remember exactly when and where. Uh, but the arrival of the trade store makes a big difference because it brings with it different ways of constructing the world um, in which you can't just go and take your cousin's things. If you do that, you might get prosecuted. It's illegal. Right. And people don't understand this. But now, because of the, the trade store, what, he's, what he says is, by looking at the way the trade store operates, which does involve money and does involve commercial relations rather than sharing and gift exchange, in commercial relations there's absolute ownership and absolute separation of goods and money from possessor in the exchange, where it never occurs with gift exchange. You always, in some way are identified with what you've given, and that creates links between people. The arrival of the trade store, he says, introduces a new model of the person, a model of the person. It introduces a new model of the person in which ownership is used to construct the new kind of individual. And if you go to, to a, a text, um, which is no doubt somewhat out of date, but nevertheless clearly... Um, contains some truth by Macpherson on the 17th century England, you find something very similar. The new conception of the individual is created, he says, by reading back into it ownership of property, because this is a period in which a new class is establishing itself through the individual ownership of property, which is theirs absolutely. It's not vulnerable to being taken away in any form by anybody else. So their freedom and their life potential is defined by the property that they own, and therefore the notion of the individual is, is constructed, to some extent at least, out of the institution of individual property. So if we go to Greece and India, there's quite evidence quite independent from everything I've been talking about for the development of individual property at the expense of ownership by the kinship group. So what is property like in the Homeric poems? And what is exchange like in the Homeric poems? 
Well, first of all, in Homeric poems, there's no money. Uh, secondly, there's very little commerce, and it's only at the margins and performed by disreputable people like Phoenicians. Right. And uh, the main form of exchange is gift exchange. And it's through gift exchange that you create relations. Now, um, what is exchanged in gift exchange? Well, in Homeric poems, because they're only concerned with an elite group, it's prestige objects like tripods and horses and so on, mm. fine textiles. And that it is that creates links between aristocratic households in different places. And you have genre scenes in which it's all beautifully described, so the centre of what's going on socially. Now, of course, when it comes to the Iliad, you have a problem because the Greeks storm a city, and not necessarily Troy, they stormed a number of other cities, and the issue arises of who has the right to distribute the plunder now, it can be done by the Greeks in general or by the king. The king does it in various versions, and he does it unfairly. So what he should be doing is taking this plunder and giving it to Achilles or Odysseus or whatever it is. That's a gift. It's not, it's not a, an income. It's a gift. And by doing that, he creates the links. There's no other link that enables Agamemnon to hold the Greeks, into a coherent body. It's through distributing the goods and their gifts. But things go wrong, and Achilles feels slighted, and he withdraws from the battle, so that what does Agamemnon do? He offers, more, he offers gifts. He offers gifts, uh, lots of them, to bring Achilles back into the battle. But Achilles says, in effect, it's too late. I hate your gifts. Ekthra timoi tasadora. Your gifts are hateful to me. That is devastating because it's not just about Agamemnon and Achilles. It's about a whole social system breaking down. He's rejecting the principle of gifts. And there's something similar that goes on in the Odyssey. So the Iliad and the Odyssey are about what I call a crisis of reciprocity in which the old economic system has broken down. And it's precisely in the context, incidentally, of rejecting the gifts that Achilles talks about his own psuche. And it's the passage in Homer which comes closest to the psuche being what it is later, which is something infinitely valuable, which he's not going to give up in return for gifts. So it's the isolation of Achilles as a result of the breakdown of this exchange system, which gives you the first glimpse of what would be so important later, which is the valorization of the individual psuche. There's a lot there to chew over. I think we're going to have to leave it for this episode. Um, thank you very much for listening. We've learned a few things about where the soul came from in the West. And until next time, stay esoteric. Mm-hmm.